Psalm 119, those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Father, we know that your eyes run to and fro over the surface of the earth, and you know every heart and every mind. And Lord, you know us here today, and we desire to stand before you clean and pure, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and we desire that your Holy Spirit will be our strength, our guide. He will be our teacher. We know, Lord, that you have given us your precepts, your testimony, your law, your word. Uh, that is for the instruction, not just of our minds, but of our hearts, that our lives might be lived in accordance with the law of the Lord. Father, we're so thankful that uh, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, if we are yours, to empower us and to enable us to live in accordance with your word. So, Lord, we ask that you will strengthen us through this hour. I pray for the needs of each one here, that you will meet those needs, and ask that you'll be present throughout this uh, property today as the word is proclaimed in many different venues, in the auditorium and in Sunday school classes of all kinds. And we trust, Lord, that hearts will be changed and that your spirit will move in a powerful way uh, throughout this premise. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is being proclaimed worldwide today. And we trust that everyone that has been called into your kingdom will yield to you this day. And uh, a great work will be done. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We've been looking at kind of an overview. And I wanted to do this so that as we move into the books of Kings, First and Second Kings, and the parallel passages in Second Chronicles that will have the context for that period and as well as the general picture. Sometimes we get so looking at the trees we forget that there's a forest. And so we kind of need this overlook and overview. And so we've been doing this and we have seen how God brought the, the tribes of Israel into Canaan by his power in a very unlikely situation. I and mean, here they are, 400 years in, in Egypt in slavery, and, and God sends an unlikely shepherd into the picture to, to bring them out of Egypt and ultimately into the land of Canaan. And we looked at uh, Joshua's role in all of this last week, too, just briefly. But I'd like to uh, say this morning that ever since Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from the top of Mount Sinai, Israel became a theocracy. Theocracy means God ruling, that God's in charge. Many different uh, nations have attempted to be theocracies. Today we face the situation where some of the Islamic countries would like to be theocracies, where, where Allah rules and he doesn't rule through a, through a republic, and that's why many people resist the idea of establishing a republic in Iraq. They, they want the imams to rule. Uh, because they will hear the word of God and, and they will rule in, accord, in accordance with that. And, you know, we've seen that in Iran with the Ayatollah. And now Iran's attempting to, to do a Republican thing, but they're struggling with that. But this theocracy was truly God-ordained. God said, I will be your king. 
and this was during the time of Moses, of course, and Joshua as the land was conquered. But after the death of Joshua, this form of government continued. And God raised up what were known as the Shofatim, and, and we spent quite a bit of time looking at First and Second Samuel and how that all played out. The book of Judges shows us who these Shofatim were, these dozen or more individuals that God raised up to lead his people into victory against the outsiders that came in to invade the land. And for two to three hundred years, depending on the exact chronology, this condition prevailed. And of course the degree of success varied. In some cases the victory was really great as it, under Gideon, and in other cases the victory was relatively minor, as in the case of uh, Samson. Finally, in the mid-11th century, during the time of the last Shofat, of course Samuel didn't know he was the last Shofat, but he was a great prophet. The majority of the Israelites at that time then decided, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king, you know, kind of deal. And God told Samuel to go ahead and give them a king. Because as God said to Samuel, it is not you, Samuel, they're rejecting. It is I who is being rejected. Well, they came to this decision. The Israelites came to this decision based primarily on two factors. The first was, in order for theocracy to function correctly, the people had to trust in God and obey Him. <laughs> That's the basic premise of a theocracy. You believe in the God and you do what He says, and then a theocracy works. But if you don't believe in God, or if you don't want to obey His word, which they frequently chose to disobey, then you have the tragic results, which are spelled out to us in the book of Judges. And you see the various invasions that came in and the great loss of life which occurred. But if they had a king, then they would know exactly who was responsible to govern them and who they were to follow. They would no longer have to trust in God alone to raise up their next shofat. Oh, who's, how's God going to save us? Oh God, we need salvation. Help us. You know, who are you going to raise up? And, and then to further trust the shofat or the God of the shofat to give them victory and to serve in obedience to the shofat and to God to bring about that victory. Instead, they could put their trust in a king. He's responsible. His army will do the job. We can just sit back and not be responsible. It's up to the king and it's up to his army. And if he failed, they knew who to blame. You blame the king, you don't blame yourself. Out of this, I think it's very clear to see that there's a basic principle here. And that is the life of works is a whole lot easier than a life of faith. It's a whole lot easier to know what all the hoops are and then to jump through the hoops than to live moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, in faithful obedience, listening to God and seeking His guidance for this hour and the next hour. Oh, if you know what the hoop is, if you know on this Friday it's time to, to do this and, and uh, this week it's time to do that uh, because all these little hoops have been set up, that's, that's an easy way to go. If one jumps through all the hoops, he can believe that all is well, regardless of reality. A life of faith required that what Israel wasn't willing to give at that particular time, and that was genuine faith in the daily power and the eminence of God. That he wasn't like the Muslims believe, way out there somewhere, and you just, you know, do what he says, but that he's here. 
to walk with you each day and to help you do the things he's asked to be done. To be obedient to his word. Obedience. <laughs> Obedience is a very big word. There's a song about that you may remember from childhood. Obedience is a big word or something like that. However the song goes, I don't remember. But it's a lot, but it's something that most of us and most of people through history have had a big problem with. It is not in our nature to obey. Right, Brad? <laughs> he knows, not because Brad's disobedient. <laughs> <laughs> but because that's what he has to deal with, these juvenile delinquents in, in his work. And he, he knows that we were just talking about the fact that lack of structure is one of their, one of their big problems in, in learning how to, to be obedient. One, one can think that all is well between himself and God because he has followed the, the, the prescribed formula. I fasted when I should have fasted. Well, just go back and look at the Pharisees, you know. You didn't pick the grain on certain, you know, on the Sabbath. You, you had to wash your hands ceremonially before you did anything. And, you know, all these kinds of formula that you follow. But problem with trusting in the formula is it tends to ignore the condition of the heart. And that's what, you know, one of the things about the Old Testament that should ring through very loud and clear is that God is always bringing it back to the heart, to faith. And he keeps saying, you, you do all these new moon feasts and you have all these sacrifices, but your heart is far from me. Just throw away all that stuff and put your heart where it ought to be. And that's God's greatest concern. And so the theocracy wasn't working, not because God was failing, but because the people were not willing to obey and trust, which is what made theocracy work. Secondly, the second reason Israel wanted a king is they wanted to be like all of the surrounding peoples who were living in kingdoms. All the pomp and circumstance that went around along with having a king. I mean, who could Israel say? If somebody wanted to negotiate with Israel, they had to negotiate with a committee. You know, with the leaders of the 12 tribes had to get together to negotiate if there was to be any negotiation with an outside power. There was no king, no foreign secretary to deal with. And, and they didn't like the fact that they were so different. And, and, and the glitter of a standing army. Oh, to watch the... I mean, all we have to do is look around today. We all keep seeing these little short clips of the North Korean army. Goose stepping down the street, you know, with their guns and looking all the way up at... Kim Il-sik and, and, that's not his name, but that's what he is, <laughs> and carrying all the weapons and all of, all, all of this, uh, so forth. That, that pomp, that glitter is, is very, creates a great deal of patriotism or something. What is it? It's the lure of the world. It's the lure of the world to be like the world. They wanted to be like everybody else. They didn't want to be different. They didn't want to stand out. And of course, that's what so many, from J. Vernon McGee to A.W. Tozer and to all the great, uh, what should we call them, modern uh, sages, keep talking about how the world is creeping into the church. And the church is looking more like the world all the time. God wants the church to be radically different from the world. That's why I, I, I'm not the only one that has this problem. but. There are those who have problems with this so-called seeker-sensitive kind of ministry where you don't want to make people who come from the world feel uncomfortable. Well, God wants to make them feel very uncomfortable. 
because if they're comfortable, they won't ever change and won't ever allow God to change them. Not that God can't use that, but I think there are other ways um, by which it could be done. Unfortunately, as Jesus said, you cannot, we cannot love the world and love God at the same time. It just isn't possible. So what God did was to point out to Samuel the reality of the situation here. As I alluded to, let me just read that passage from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel has demanded a king and Samuel doesn't want to do it. But this is what the Lord says in Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And then God goes right on to explain to Samuel exactly what a king is going to require. It's going to be taxes and your young men for the army and your young women for the court and all this stuff, which is going to be onerous after a while. might seem glamorous at first, but after a while it ceases to be very glamorous at all and becomes extremely trying. Samuel is a pivotal person in the history of Israel. If you were to go start with Abraham and <clears throat> go down through the history of Israel and point out pivotal people, obviously you're Moses and obviously you're Joshua, you would also have to include Samuel as an outstanding one who ranks up there with Moses and Abraham as a pivotal and, a, and an important person in the history of Israel. He was not the last prophet, but he was the last shofat, the last judge. His anointing of Saul as Israel's first king marked the end of the theocracy. No longer would they be ruled by God through the shofat, the shofatim, and through the priesthood, but now they will be ruled by a king. Now, it's not that a king can't be attuned to God, as David was, but as it will turn out, the vast majority of them did not even know God. Samuel himself, of course, had been well prepared for this task. Let me just read you a couple of verses here from the third chapter of uh, 1 Samuel about Samuel himself in verse, 1 Samuel 3:19. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. What an epitaph. It wasn't an epitaph, but it could be. It was a prologue in effect, to, to his ministry. Let none of his words fail. <laughs> How many of us would love to have that, as well, long as we're saying good words, of course, be true? And, and so that was of the man Samuel. And let me just summarize what we'll talk about in not much more detail, but a little bit more detail here in a minute. The two major periods 
of the early Israelite monarchy are known as the united monarchy and the divided monarchy. Now you have these sheets, I, the sheet I hope, it's, it's one sheet, I have the masters here, they're in two separate sheets, but it's one sheet. And if you look on this second side, it gives you the united monarchy and the divided monarchy, okay? The united monarchy and the divided monarchy. And that's what you read about as you read 2 Samuel. If anybody doesn't have one, Norma has a few copies there. The first portion of it is called the United Monarchy, and that's the reign of Saul, David, and Solomon. Those three performed the United Monarchy, meaning all Israel was united under one king. The divided monarchy, and, and that lasted from about 1050 to about 930 B.C. Okay, so about 120 years. Roughly 40 years for Saul, 40 for David, and 40 for Solomon, approximately. The divided monarchy began when the northern tribes said, we, don't, we have no portion in David, referring not to David himself because he was dead, but to Solomon's son Rehoboam. Because Rehoboam was a jerk. And so they decided they weren't going to follow Rehoboam. They were going to follow this upstart by the name of Jeroboam. And the divided kingdoms were known as the northern kingdom of Israel, or sometimes Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Judah. This condition, if you look at it there, this overall condition of divided monarchy prevails from 930 to 586. The northern kingdom, however, comes to an end in 722. So there really isn't two kingdoms for that whole period of time. But Judah, as a southern kingdom, lasts for, what would that be, about a century and a half beyond the demise of the northern kingdom of Israel. And of course, this is, this is spelled out in the books of the kings. And we'll be getting to that in much greater detail uh, later on. So let me just back up here and move through this quickly. We've already talked about the life of the man Saul. We are not going to do that again. But Saul, as the first anointed king of Israel, ruled the traditional area from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. This is, as I've mentioned to you when we were doing the book of 2 Samuel, Dan to Beersheba became sort of the synonym for what we would say, you know, the 40 U.S. Con contiguous states or something like that, just to, to give parameters. Not exact parameters, but approximate parameters. And so he, he ruled the central, the, the highlands and part of the Shephelah over here and uh, the plateau of Gilead over here. The Philistine plain and the Phoenician territory was outside of Saul's domain. Saul didn't even control the whole Negev down here in the south or uh, Bashan, which originally was part of the Ten Tribes territory. Saul's territory was quite limited. There was no true national administration. There was no true standing army during the time of Saul. So really, during Saul's reign, things were almost totally unchanged for the average Israelite citizen as, from what they had been under the Shofatim. So Saul was sort of like a permanent Shofat, who, whose son could inherit the throne, theoretically. It wasn't until David came to power around 1010 B.C. that a true central government was developed. 
that an effective national army was created and that the national borders were secured. In fact, David went far beyond securing the traditional borders. He brilliantly led this Israelite army that had begun with his 600 men that he had been chased around with, not by, but who were with him as he was chased around by Saul. This, this 600 burgeoned into the great army of Israel, which he used to conquer most of the surrounding nations. And as we were studying this just before we, as we came to the end of 2 Samuel, <clears throat> we saw how David pushed, this is the, this is traditional Israel in here. This is basically Saul's kingdom right here. David pushed the borders clear down to the Red Sea and all the way up to the Euphrates River up here. So he multiplied the, the area here at least three to four times what it had been. And he conquered Edom and Moab and Ammon and all the Aramaic kingdoms up in here. And so this vast territory, for Israel it was vast. I mean, even when you add it all together, you can still stick the whole thing in San Bernardino County. So we always have to scale our thinking down, you know, when we think about this. But you also have to remember everything was done by foot and horseback, too, not by car and airplane. Uh, traveling by air in Israel is almost hardly worth the effort of warming the engine up, you know, to fly from one spot to the other. But here's the great empire. In effect, David established an empire. And it was only during the reigns of David and Solomon that Israel approximated what God had promised to Abraham when he said that the land which I am giving to you will stretch from the river of Egypt, here's the brook of Egypt, or sometimes called the river of Egypt down here, to the Euphrates. The great river, the river Euphrates, as, it, as we're told in Genesis chapter 15, when God made that original promise to Abraham. So it's not until David's time that that territory at least approximately is controlled. It's not totally what had been promised because it's also said from the desert over here to the sea. And obviously, during, even during David and Solomon's time, Phoenicia continued to exist as an independent nation. Although Phoenicia was by necessity very friendly to Israel because had Israel turned her forces against Phoenicia, it wouldn't be very difficult to have overrun Phoenicia. They could have done that. But they didn't, even during the time of David. During the days of David and Solomon, Israel actually became a major player in the Near Eastern world. Now, to us today, that may not sound like such a big deal because we think of Israel today as being the stick by which the pot is stirred over there all the time. We think of Israel as a major player, partly because ever since 1947, every time the uh, neighbors have tried to defeat Israel or run it into the sea, they've been beaten uh, by Israel. So we think of Israel as a major player over there today. But if you go back before the modern time, Israel and Palestine were nothing, you know, as far as the Near Eastern world was concerned, except in this moment of time. And this was providential. It was providential because at this moment, God had seen to it that there were no major powers to challenge Israel. Not that he couldn't have sustained them anyway. But 
the Egyptian new kingdom had collapsed by the time David came to the throne and had become overrun by Nubians and Libyans surrounding peoples and was no longer a major player in the Near East. The Hittite Empire was long dead and in the grave, you might say. And over here in Mesopotamia, instead of one great kingdom controlling the whole area, is a bunch of small kingdoms, rival kingdoms. And so Israel at that time, uh, under David, was actually, um, could be called the dominant power. The kings of surrounding nations certainly knew who David was and, and respected him. Much like uh, if you go to the ninth century in Europe, I wish, of course, you remember the details of that real well. Let me tell you that even as far away as, as this area that we're talking about, the people who lived there knew that Charlemagne ruled in Europe and they respected Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the king of the Franks. He established an empire in Europe which included almost all of Western Europe except Britain and, and Spain and Italy, but the re most of the rest of it was under the rule of Charlemagne. And even though they may never have faced him face to face, they respected him and they knew he was a great warrior and so it would be here. David would be seen as a great warrior, as a conquering king, although most of the kings of the surrounding nations had no direct dealings with him. But then came Solomon. Solomon came to power around 970 BC and he inherited the great Davidic empire. However, he also created for himself a great harem. That's one of the amazing stories we'll get to when we look at 2 Kings, how anybody could decide that a thousand women in his life was a good thing. <laughs> in the relationship of marriage or concubinage, they did turn his heart away from God as God had said what happened. God had warned back in Deuteronomy, he had said before Israel ever had a king, the king was not to multiply wives to himself because they would turn his heart away from God. And not only did they turn his heart away from God, but they turned his heart away from the energetic defense of his empire. And so territory began to slip away. And when he died, his son Jerob uh, Rehoboam came to the throne, and Rehoboam, as I said, was something less than a paragon of virtue. He was not even a man after Solomon's heart, and as a result, he treated the people poorly, and so the ten northern tribes said, forget you, Rehoboam, we have nothing to do with the house of David, and they followed an upstart by the name of Jeroboam. And so the heartland of Israel became divided, and two separate kingdoms came into existence, as I mentioned to you a minute ago. Samaria would be the capital of the northern kingdom, which would be called Israel or Ephraim or sometimes Samaria and the southern kingdom would be called Judah. Brad? Population wise, how did Judah's only one tribe compare in population to the other 11? Well actually we need to modify that a little bit. First of all Judah for some reason did tend to become ultimately the most populous tribe if you separate Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, if Ephraim and Manasseh were considered to be the tribe of Joseph, which is what they originally were, then they were the largest tribe numerically. But when divided, Judah somehow became the most populous tribe. But we have more than that. Actually, Judah included not only the tribe of Judah, but also the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Simeon. For some reason, the Simeonites ended up living down the middle of the tribal area of Judah. Plus the fact that as time passed, there were many from other tribes that migrated into the territory of Judah because Judah maintained the focus on the temple in Jerusalem. 
Whereas up in Samaria, Jeroboam established a golden calf at Dan and one at Bethel so that they would worship there and not go to Jerusalem because he was afraid that they would reunite back with the king in Jerusalem and, and not keep the two kingdoms divided. So Judah was smaller in number, even given all that, was smaller in, lump, in number than the northern kingdom. So whenever an army, uh, a battle occurred, the people of Judah were always out, almost always outnumbered by the northern kingdom if they were fighting against each other. But generally they tended to prevail anyway. You know, that's, what, that's why I was asking because they, they tended to win more often than not and I didn't know if that was numerical superiority or... No, it's because a point I was going to make here in a minute in, is that of the kings beginning with Jeroboam and ending with a king by the name of Hosea, there were 19 kings in Israel during its history. Not one, not even one followed God. Not a single one of them did right in the eyes of God. All 19 turned their back on God and many of them were extremely evil like Ahab. And as a result, God was always against them. Whereas in Judah, not all the kings of Judah were godly either. There were about 10 of them that were ungodly, about five of them which were kind of quasi, and then about five of them that did what was right in the eyes of God as David, their father, had done. And we'll talk about, when we go to, of course, the study of 2 Kings, we'll talk about them in detail. But the failure of the northern kingdom to follow God had very serious consequences. And what is interesting is that Israel became divided. And you'll notice as you look at this map, where is the kingdom? Where's the empire? Where's the territory down here? Where's the territory over here? Where's the territory all up in here? Well, as the kingdom became divided, civil war broke out between the two. And as the Jews and the Israelites fought against each other, their empire collapsed because they weren't defending the empire and these people, the Syrians and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and all the otherites, broke away and even attacked Israel and Judah. In fact, when you read through 2 Kings, it seems like they're always at war with somebody. And this would be the result. The empire would be lost because of the ungodliness of the rulers of the two kingdoms during most of the time. This shows the northern kingdom here. This is Israel. And this is Judah down here. But you'll notice Philistia is separate. Phoenicia is separate. The Aramaic lands up here are separate, Ammon is separate, Moab is separate, Edom is separate, all which were under the rule of David are not. They break free. And so you have the little tiny kingdom of Judah, the only slightly larger kingdom of Israel. And again, the whole kingdom of Israel could be put into Shasta County. So you get a sense of, even though this, is some, this part of the world is sometimes called the cockpit of history, and, and yet, we're talking about very tiny, in terms of territory, very tiny areas. In the 8th century, great powers began to arise again in Mesopotamia. They didn't have much to fear from Egypt, a little bit, a little revival here and there, but the main powers to be feared were those that would rise up in Mesopotamia. The first great power that would rise up after the collapse of the Davidic Empire was Assyria. Now, Assyria is to be kept separate from Syria. Syria and Assyria 
totally different peoples, spoke different languages, and even though Syria would be ruled by Assyria during this period of time, you see Assyria, the heartland of Assyria, well, the heartland of Assyria is Baghdad, <laughs> except Baghdad didn't exist in those days. But uh, Nineveh and Asher and several other cities were capitals from one time or the other, but Assyria was the northern end of uh, Mesopotamia. But when the Assyrians built their empire, they incorporated everything in pink. They ruled from the head of the Persian Gulf, Babylon in other words, Assyria itself, Syria, Phoenicia, Philistia, both Israel and Judah, and all the way down to Thebes in the central portion of Egypt was ruled by Assyria at the height of its power. Now, the Assyrians began to develop their power in the 9th century, but it wasn't until the 8th century that they began to make a major impact. There is a biblical reference to Assyria in possibly the 8th, maybe the 9th century in the story of Jonah, who went to Nineveh to tell them of their the destruction that was going to come because they were so sinful. Uh, that was before the great empire came into existence. After that, the empire came into existence because they repented and God allowed the nation to continue. And as a result, the great Assyrian empire was built. And what's interesting is that the Assyrians were the Nazis of the ancient world. They built this mighty army and they would come to a city and they would ask the city to surrender. If the city didn't surrender and they had to take the city and it cost them some soldiers, they generally would butcher the entire population in very, very horrible ways. And they actually portray them on the walls of their palaces. They would flay people alive, you know, skin them alive. They would stick them on stake. I mean, all kinds of gross things they would do if they resisted. But if you opened the door and said, hey, come on in, uh, we're on your side, why then they wouldn't do those things. So they hoped that that threat would cause all the cities to surrender, but they didn't all, and, and some pretty tragic things. This is called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. If you go back to your first page of this, you will notice that there is an early Assyrian Empire in the, from 1380 to about 1100. The early Assyrian Empire just basically ruled this area of northern Mesopotamia, northern Iraq, was mostly the early Assyrian Empire. It's the Neo, the new Assyrian Empire, the later Assyrian Empire, that I am talking about here at this juncture. The northern kingdom of Israel was overwhelmed by the Assyrian Empire. Tens of thousands of Israelites were carried into captivity by the Assyrian king whose name is Sargon II. And mention, yeah, I mentioned him there, right under Neo-Syria, Sargon. He was only one of many kings. But I mention him specifically because he is the one who carried off tens of thousands of people from the northern kingdom into captivity. And these became what are known as the lost tribes of Israel. You may have heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel, the lost tribes of Israel. That's an interesting theory. And it comes from this very event where he captured the, the city of Samaria after a siege here, and, and he carried off. Now, he only carried off the cream. He carried off the leaders. He didn't carry everybody out. He left the bulk of the population there. That's why the ten lost tribes of Israel is a total misnomer, because the vast bulk of the population remained. They didn't go into captivity. I mean, they were 
you know, under the Assyrians, but they stayed in the land. Only the princes and the rulers and the pretty girls were carried off into captivity, and they were spread out through other parts of the Assyrian Empire where they kind of, I suppose, blended into the wall and disappeared. But the majority of them stayed there. The ten lost tribes are, they aren't lost. First of all, because many of them had already escaped into Judah. Inside of Judah were thousands of people from every single tribe of Israel. So the modern Jews, many of them have within them not only the blood of, of the tribe of Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, and uh, Levi, but they also have in many cases the blood, uh, the, the blood of Ephraim and Manasseh and Asher and Naphtali and so forth as well. Besides, the bulk of them were left there. And other people were moved in to rule over them, to make sure they were loyal. People who were not Israelites were moved in from other parts of the empire, and they intermarried with them and created the group known as the Samaritans. And of course, we know all about the Samaritans in the time of Jesus, where you, you walked around. You know, if you were going from Jerusalem up here to Galilee, you didn't go through Samaria. You went on the other side of the Jordan to come up. Uh, because you want to pollute yourself by going through a country of half-breeds, of people who are mixed, of people who, who no longer worship the God in a true way. They allowed their blood to be polluted with Gentile blood, so to speak. And, and you know, there's been many theories that one is that, well, the real Jews, the ten lost tribes became the tribe of Kazakhs, uh, or they became the, the, uh, the early British. You've heard of Briz British Israelism, Israelitism, uh, the idea that some of the early tribes that lived in Britain were actually the ten lost tribes of Israel, or that the American Indians, how in the world they got over here, I don't know, but anyway, the American Indians were descended from the ten tribes of, uh, I guess somebody read the Book of Mormon or something and came up with this... Uh, particular idea. The question is, why did God allow this to happen to Israel and allow these people to be carried off? The answer is given in 2 Kings where we read these words, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant. That's the reason. Not one, I reemphasize, not one of the 19 kings in the history of the northern king of Israel did right in the eyes of Isn't that interesting? It's a sad story that you think about the fact that here were God's people, and yet not a single one of 19 kings did right in the eyes of God. Not a one. Judah survived because godly king Hezekiah was on the throne providentially was on the throne of Judah at the time the Assyrians attacked. And so Judah was able to hold out. Let me read a passage to you from 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, reading at verse 3. This is talking about Hezekiah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. These are all pagan worship sites and objects. He also broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. That's interesting. I, I put together one time a whole sermon on just basically that, uh, that verse. The bronze 
that the Israelites had taken an object that was a good object and they had made it an icon, an idol, uh, something to worship. You know, this, this bronze serpent that had been raised in the wilderness to stop the plague. And they still had it and, and now they were worshiping it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. However, by 700 B.C., Judah, and it doesn't even show up on this map because it's so dinky, Judah was a small island in, a, in an Assyrian sea, so to speak. In other words, if this map were accurate and if it were portraying the, the time we're talking about here, right around Jerusalem would be an area that was not pink. Because although the king of Judah uh, did pay some tribute, I suppose that might be the reason it's included here, but it was not occupied by the Assyrians. Judah was still independent in terms of what was going on inside that kingdom. And so Assyria never conquered Judah. However, within a hundred years, due to the foolishness and faithlessness of subsequent kings, Judah would be conquered by Neo-Babylon. What happened was that Babylon rose up against its master, Assyria. And the Babylonians, with the help of the Medes who lived over here, crushed Nineveh, and the Assyrian Empire ceased to exist. But all the Babylonians did was replace the Assyrian Empire with the Babylonian Empire. And so you have the Neo, or New Babylonian Empire, which included virtually everything that the Assyrians included except for the Egyptian portion. And here's the Median Empire over here, Medes. The, I mean, you, you run across the Medes as you read the Old Testament, the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were cousins. And uh, Medes had an empire before the Persians had an empire. The Persians lived down in southern Media down here. Anyway, the, the Median Empire, they, they overthrew the Assyrian Empire, and the Neo-Babylonian Empire simply replaced the Assyrian Empire. And as a result, not only would Judah be invaded, she would be conquered, and not only would Jerusalem be captured, but she would be destroyed by the Babylonians. In, yes, Bill? You know when Hezekiah got ill, of course, his life was exhibited, and, and he showed everything, and Isaiah came and spoke, and, and though it seems strange, it seems that Isaiah seems to imply almost that he wouldn't have, it wasn't just a prophecy, but if he wouldn't have shown anything, that it wouldn't happen. So just a prophecy, do you think, or? I think he's po just pointing out a reality of the situation. If you don't want people to break into your house, then don't live too ostentatiously, right? Kind of the idea, I suppose. And, of course, the fact that he insisted that, you know, he wanted to live longer and all that kind of stuff led to great tragedy and that a son would be born to him in his old age that would turn out to be one of the most horrendous kings in the history of Judah. And he would rule a very long time. But that's another interesting story when we get to 
to the kings looking at uh, that man and, and what may have happened to him in the end is, is really an incredible story. But let me wind it up today by saying that in 606 B.C., may have that, maybe I don't. Anyway, in 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar first invaded the land and captured Jerusalem, okay? And he carried off a bunch of captives. One of those was a man named, named Daniel. And it was a good thing Daniel was carried off because he gives us a prophecy and historical records from the very heart of Babylon. And then in 596, you know, the Jews got very rebellious again, so Nebuchadnezzar came back and reoccupied the, the place and captured Jerusalem again in 596. And this time when he carried off a bunch of captives, he carried off a young man by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, of course, would be transferred over there. And then in that environment, he would write a prophecy as well. And then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came back and he said, I've had it with you people. He flattened the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of Solomon to the ground. And the prophet Jeremiah, who was alive at that particular time, he didn't get carried off by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon because the Jews who saw Nebuchadnezzar coming grabbed Jeremiah because he kept saying to them, listen to Nebuchadnezzar, obey Nebuchadnezzar. This is what God wants you to do. And they kept saying, no, what are you going to do? So when he came, they grabbed Jeremiah and ran off down to Egypt with him. <laughs> so three great prophets associated with the three great invasions and conquests of Jerusalem, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, who were contemporaries, of course, and who write about this particular period of time, particularly Jeremiah, who tells us how long the Jews would be in Babylon. Well, I guess we'll have to stop at that point where we've run out of time here. Just backing up for a second, the little three chapter, I believe it's three chapters, the prophet Nahum, Mm -hmm. is a really a vivid picture of the fall of a prophesying. Oh, yes. Primary focal point. Woe to the bloody city. Yeah. And Nahum prophesied half a century before or so, probably. Reflects the cruelty of the Assyrians talking about yeah, his prophecy of vengeance. Good. Thank you. Well, we're, we're going to look at next week at the captivity and something that was born out of the captivity which has been with the Jews ever since and it's a very uh, interesting story.